Good morning, Dr. McCullough. Good morning, can you hear me okay? Uh, not well, so we're gonna work with that. You're... <clears throat> so we'll keep going here, Dr. McCullough, so they can sort out the uh, the sound. I, I can hear you, I'm, it's just it's not projecting that well. My okay, name is Nicole. Until uh, top of the hour. So. Okay, yes, no problem at all, and I do apologize for being late. We're running a little bit late, we had some technical issues. So we're gonna move through, and I'll have you out here by the top of the hour. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, um, we know. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna uh, put you under oath. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Do you do you affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in your testimony? Yes, I do. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, we know you're a cardiologist, an internist, an epidemiologist. Could you start by giving a summary of your um, uh, qualifications and experience? I'll do so quickly. Uh, I'm in practice in Dallas, Texas, in internal medicine and cardiology. I hold degrees from Baylor University, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, uh, University of Michigan School of Public Health, and Southern Methodist University Graduate School. Uh, I've been in practice now uh, for, uh, for greater than four decades. And uh, I have published extensively on the interface between heart and kidney disease in the last three years, have directed my clinical and research focus on COVID-19. I have over 60 peer-reviewed papers on SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19 illness. And I've commented extensively uh, in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates, as well as in the media. Thank you. And uh, Dr. McCullough, you also have a clinical practice whereby you've had opportunity to treat COVID-19 or vaccine patients? Yes. Okay, I want to turn to SARS-CoV-2, Dr. McCullough. The government of Canada determined in the early stages of the COVID crisis, so in and around early March 2020, that the virus was highly transmissible and a virulent pathogen with an approximate 1% fatality rate for which there was no natural immunity and no effective antivirals. Can you comment on those conclusions? Uh, I disagree with those. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, was one that was early on well characterized. Uh, it was uh, highly uh, transmissible from symptomatic person to susceptible person. It had an overall case fatality rate far less than 1% available uh, to risk stratification. So the elderly, those with multiple risk factors at risk for death and uh, we knew early on that the virus was amenable to uh, antivirals and more importantly, uh, use of drugs to reduce inflammation and thrombosis. So um, within a few months of the onset of the pandemic, myself and researchers uh, had already synthesized and then uh, quickly published the first uh, peer-reviewed paper describing uh, the, the treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection at home to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And that was ultimately well supported over the next few months with multiple comparative studies. Thank you. What do we know about the virulence of the virus now, Dr. McCullough? It's greatly reduced uh, with the continued progression of mutations to the Omicron and the subvariants. Dr. McCullough, Canadians were advised that until a vaccine was created that the only available interventions were non-pharmaceutical measures, 
to reduce transmission in the population, such as frequency of contact reduction, such as isolation, as well as transmission prob probability reducing measures, such as social distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, and so forth. Can you comment on the assertion that these were the only available measures prior to the vaccine rollout? Yeah, I, I disagree with that. Uh, before the vaccine rollout, uh, we had uh, dozens of peer-reviewed manuscripts, comparative studies that sequenced multidrug therapy for the acutely ill, worked to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And just shortly after 2021, we had a breakthrough paper showing that viricidal nasal sprays and, uh, and gargles uh, markedly reduced PCR positivity and reduced the risk for hospitalization and death. Uh, uh, there were no published studies at any time showing that uh, public masking, uh, social distancing, uh, hand sanitizers, or locking down those people without the illness had any impact on the pandemic. And Dr. McCullough, is there any real scientific logic to social distancing and masking and lockdowns in the context of this virus? Not among well people. So there were no data suggesting that somebody perfectly well could uh, uh, transmit the disease and make somebody symptomatic uh, who was adjacent to them. So the only thing that uh, clinically was practical is somebody acutely ill with the characteristic signs and symptoms to keep distance from others. So the only people who needed to go into quarantine were those acutely ill with SARS-CoV-2, not the universe of people without the illness. Dr. McCullough, I know that you and a, and a group of doctors had did some early research on um, the uh, COVID in the early stages, treatment of COVID in the early stages. You touched on that a bit earlier. Can you speak about your findings in a bit more detail and how those findings were received once published? The very first paper published on sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19 in the American Journal of Medicine, August 7, 2020, myself as the first author, uh, was uh, widely applauded. Uh, it's still the most frequently read uh, paper from the American Journal of Medicine over the last three years. It's listed as a top uh, paper of interest. It received multiple letters of of, to the editor as interest with replies, and it became the base standard of the Association of American Physician and Surgeons Home Treatment Guide uh, in October of 2020. So uh, it was a breakthrough piece of information, a breakthrough paper, and it was followed up in uh, December of 2020 uh, in a um, updated protocol, which included now more uh, more drugs available to you because in uh, in reviews in cardiovascular medicine in December of uh, 2020. Thank you. I want to turn your attention now to the COVID injection. It is sometimes, well, it's most often called a vaccine. It's sometimes called gene therapy. Are you able to speak to just what the injection is and how it operates? In the United States, 92% of those who've received a COVID vaccine, I'll just use the word vaccine, have received messenger RNA vaccines. And uh, the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, in my interpretation, are uh, synthetic genetic materials, a genetic uh, code uh, with uh, a three prime and five prime syn synthetic nucleoside analog caps, which make the messenger RNA essentially indestructible. They are loaded on lipid nanoparticles to provide distribution throughout the body, including uh, the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands, reproductive organs, uh, all the critical organs in the body. Messenger RNA has been demonstrated to be circulatory in the bloodstream, 
for uh, at least 28 days. Uh, we know that it, it's codes for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. The spike protein was engineered by the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and published by Manicharian colleagues in 2015. This work was done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Biosecurity Annex Level 4. So this messenger RNA that people have received codes for the uh, lethal part of the virus. And then once the messenger RNA is in the body, there is an uncontrolled production of the spike protein in terms of quantity and duration. The spike protein is proven in over a thousand peer-reviewed papers to cause damage to the brain, the heart, the blood vessels, cause blood clotting, and cause immunologic problems in the bone marrow. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. So it sounds like then that the COVID injection doesn't operate like a true vaccine. Is that correct? The, the, um, the messenger RNA vaccines uh, harness the body's own genetic material to produce the spike protein. And the spike protein causes damage to the body, as I've described. Now, the aspiration I anticipate was that the spike protein would induce immunity. Uh, but we understood very quickly that uh, there was no effective immunity from the vaccines. Uh, so within uh, 90 days of release of the Pfizer vaccine in the Pfizer post-marketing uh, data, which they kept as regulatory documents, and they were released under court order uh, to the public, uh, Pfizer had rec re recorded dozens of fatalities due to COVID in people who were fully vaccinated with the, the product. And sadly, Pfizer recorded 1,223 deaths directly attributable to the vaccine. Dr. McCullough, are you able to speak on the research and development process for this product? In other words, did it follow established regulatory standards for vaccines? In a paper by Lalani and colleagues uh, in the British Medical Journal in the last month, uh, the description of messenger RNA development is laid out in a timeline since 1985. So the United States has had a long-standing interest in the development of messenger RNA. And then in 2012, DARPA, the research division of the U.S. military, uh, uh, it created a program called the ADEPT P3 program. And it's on their website even today, stating that the military had a desire to use messenger RNA to end pandemics within 60 days. So the United States made an unprecedented government investment of messenger RNA. Um, however, uh, human studies uh, were uh, never performed uh, in, until we uh, had a condensed, rushed um, production of the, uh, the vaccines for COVID-19 in Operation Warp Speed. So it had a very long development cycle. Uh, there were many issues to tackle, and then it was in a condensed set of prospective randomized trials in order to gain emergency use authorized approval. Did safety and efficacy have to be proven in the production of the product? Safety and efficacy always have to be proven. So with genetic products, the safety uh, by regulatory standards takes a five-year timeline. So the safety study should have been started way in advance since the United States has been working on this since 1985 and they simply weren't done. Efficacy had to be proved for the outcome of hospitalization and death. And hospitalization and death was never a primary or secondary endpoint of any trial. And so there can be no claims 
that the vaccines reduced hospitalization and deaths since they weren't assessed in these trials where reported there was no reduction in hospitalization and death. In fact, deaths were more frequent in those who took a vaccine. And in the United States, the consent form doesn't make the claim that the vaccines reduce hospitalization and death. I want to turn your attention to the vaccine event recording systems, Dr. McCullough. I know in the U.S. where you are, there's the VAERS system. In Canada, we have CAFIS. It's the Canadian Adverse Events Following Immunization Surveillance System. There's the yellow card system uh, in the U.K. and the European uh, Safety Monitoring System. These systems have been in place for decades, as I understand it, at least in Canada. CAFIS has been in place since 1987. Can you speak about what, if any, unusual findings are showing up in these vaccine reporting systems following the rollout of the COVID injection? On June 11, 2022, the World Council for Health summarized those safety data systems, 39 total, but four major ones, including VAERS, Yellow Card, the UJA system, and the WHO VigiSafe system. All of them have been recording record numbers of injuries, disabilities, and deaths. For example, in the U.S. VAERS system, all vaccines combined and accumulating all injections before COVID, uh, a child would receive greater than 70 injections over the course of childhood per American child. And we knew 98% of Americans were taking vaccines at this level. Uh, there was a total on average of 158 deaths per year in this entire data system, which is fast. With COVID-19 vaccines, as we sit here today, as of March 3rd, 2023, for U.S. domestic cases only, VAERS has recorded 17,071 deaths that have occurred within a few days of taking the COVID-19 vaccines and 16,454 permanently disabled Americans. The VAERS reports are largely done by doctors, nurses, and and, and those caring for patients where they believe the vaccine is the cause of the injury or death. Dr. McCuller, is there an accepted percentage of adverse events that are considered medically tolerable, if you will, beyond which the product will be removed from the market for safety concerns? I've chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards as the, uh, as the head of the board or a member, including those for the NIH, uh, BARDA, the, the military research division of the NIH, as well as uh, pharmaceutical companies, in vitro diagnostic companies. And it's my testimony that 5, 10, 15, no more than 50 deaths, even for the large, largest program, would ever be tolerable. That programs would be shut down uh, and then a, a deep dive on safety to figure out why people are dying after taking an injection. So uh, it's my testimony that knowing what we know with uh, the rollout of Pfizer in the United States was started December 10th, 2020. Pfizer should have been pulled off the market before the end of January of 2021 with fewer than 27 million Americans being injected. Uh, Moderna uh, probably should never have rolled out. And if it rolled out, it would have been pulled off the market shortly afterwards. Janssen, uh, again, should have never had market entry because Pfizer and the entire product line would be off the market because uh, there would be a, a understanding that the spike protein being produced uh, is lethal to the human body. Dr. McCullough, can you spoke a little bit on adverse events already, but um, 
Would you speak in a little more detail on the cardio, sorry, cardiovascular events that are medically known to be connected to these COVID vaccines? There's over 200 peer-reviewed papers published on cardiovascular syndromes directly attributed to COVID-19 vaccination and agreed to by regulatory authorities. One of them is myocarditis or heart inflammation. Two studies have indicated that 2.5% of people who take a vaccine uh, suffer heart damage. About half of them it's symptomatic, half of them it's not. Uh, the, the peak age is 18 to 24 years, 90, uh, 90% are men, 10% women. Uh, it's a skewed distribution with the tail up into the 60s and 70s. Uh, there have been fatal cases, autopsy proven by Verma, Choi, Patone, and Gill. And uh, it is conclusive that in a fraction of those who received the COVID-19 vaccine that heart inflammation or myocarditis is fatal, and the mechanism of death is sudden cardiac death, a sudden arrhythmic death, a young person collapsing and not being resuscitated uh, by CPR. This is now well described here in the peer-reviewed literature. An important paper by Yonker and colleagues in circulation from Harvard has shown in young uh, boys and girls hospitalized at Massachusetts General Hospital with myocarditis and about 90% acutely are hospitalized to uh, have recognized the symptoms that those who are having myocarditis have uh, unopposed spike protein circulating in the body damaging the heart. Those not affected with myocarditis actually have appropriate antibodies neutralizing the spike protein. So what I conclude is that unfortunately, the, 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 a small number of people uh, do, do produce spike protein that is not effectively neutralized by the antibodies, and so they have unabated heart damage. Uh, so myocarditis uh, is, is lethal, and, uh, and of course, uh, a, a single death in a young person is unacceptable because young people are not at risk for hospitalization and death with the virus. So it, it, the, the um, COVID-19 vaccines uh, should have always been contraindicated for young people not at risk for the, uh, for the illness. In addition to that, the vaccines cause a progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. They precipitate a coronary atherosclerotic plaque rupture and traditional myocardial infarction. The uh, vaccines are proven to cause blood clots, both in arteries and in veins. And the US FDA has published on this uh, in a paper by Wu and colleagues have demonstrated thousands of Americans developing blood clots after COVID-19 vaccines, where the FDA agrees the vaccines cause the blood clots, describing them going from the ankle to the hip. So very large blood clots in the venous system. In the Wu paper, 11% are fatal. Additionally, the COVID-19 uh, vaccines have been associated with a whole variety of other cardiovascular manifestations, including vasculitis, a problem of inflammation in the blood vessels uh, in the kidneys, and a paper in the journal, the American Society of Nephrology, Canny and colleagues describe the progression of the vasculitic uh, and, uh, and nephritic kidney disease uh, in those uh, worsening their chances of uh, survival uh, free of dialysis. And um, in summary, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines, by the mechanism of 
myocarditis, progression of cardiovascular disease, and blood clots are, are believed to be the cause of unknown death in any individual where the vaccine is known to be taken by that person. Thank you. Dr. McCullough, the Canadian government has maintained that the COVID vaccines are both safe and effective and continues to encourage Canadians to um, uh, take them, including children, to vaccinate and to booster. So given what you have had to say about COVID-19, its virulence, the vaccine, and the statistics on adverse events, what is your opinion on whether the vaccine is both safe and effective? But the decision on safe and effective is made by senior doctors it, with medical authority. So I would have, and I do have medical authority over government officials in Canada. So it's my testimony today that the vaccines are neither safe nor effective, and that opinion has superiority and supersedes any government statement. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Um, my last question is really just about corrective measures. A lot of people the world over have uh, taken the injections. What, if anything, can they do to help mitigate any damage that may have occurred in their bodies? Two points. One is the toxicity and the risk of death appears to be cumulative. So uh, the first point is take no more injections because the next one could be fatal or disabling. Second point is to be vigilant. Uh, that blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage, uh, intracranial uh, hemorrhage, stroke, uh, all of these need to be clinically recognized and treated the best they can conventionally. Uh, none of the governments uh, have started uh, large research programs into vaccine injuries, disabilities, and death, and, and that, uh, that research is greatly needed. Very similar to uh, the tobacco settlement and the final recognition that tobacco causes disease uh, in the U.S. tobacco settlement, uh, much of the money uh, received by the tobacco industry had to be turned around into research in, uh, for doctors to learn how to treat patients. We'll need a similar uh, type of program with COVID-19 vaccine injuries. A paper by uh, Zogby and colleagues, a, a, rep a valid representative survey in the United States, showed that 15% of those who've taken a vaccine have some new medical illness, some new disease that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, I've covered just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the cardiovascular complications, uh, but they also span the fields of, of neuropsychiatric uh, problems, uh, autoimmune problems. And, uh, and so there's a great medical need to care for those individuals. And I would just say there's also an acute medical need, uh, even though very few people now are taking COVID-19 vaccines. The CDC vSafe data, which was released under court order, reveals seven to 8% of people who take a vaccine have to acutely go to the hospital and be hospitalized, the emergency room or urgent care center. So there's a great need to still manage the acute problems that develop within a few hours of taking the shot. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Um, I thank you sincerely for giving evidence here at this inquiry today. Don't go away just yet. I'm leaving a, a few minutes here in case any of the commissioners would have questions for you. Uh. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. 
Hi, Dr. McCullough. Thank you very much. My name is Bernard Messi. I have some expertise in biotechnology and vaccine. So I've been following everything you've published and uh, said on many conferences. Uh, one of the things that really puzzles me is what's happening with all of the evidence that has been pouring for more than two years. What's happening that the medical establishment and all of the health institution are still promoting that kind of intervention? What, what, in what the United you... States, uh, yeah, in the United States, uh, the medical establishment, I think, has been greatly influenced by the COVID Community Core Program. The COVID Community Core Program announced early in 2021 was over $13 billion that was sent out by the White House and the Department of Health and Human Services to a variety of health institutions, thousands of media outlets, Hollywood, pro sports teams, all to promote the vaccines. We know separately that Pfizer and Moderna contracted a public relations firm called Weber Shandwick. And Weber Shandwick initiated a corporate program called Plan VX. Plan VX promoted vaccine mandates within large companies. And then lastly, Weber Shandwick had an installed marketing unit within the CDC vaccine office. This has all been uncovered by Senator Rand Paul in October of 2022 and is publicly disclosed. Thank you. Okay, those are all the questions. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, for appearing here today.